0: Amen. Good morning, Amwood Park Bible Church. Oh, man. I missed you guys last Sunday. Um, I especially missed you guys last Sunday. Uh, terribly. Just don't tell the people in Eastern North Carolina I said that, please. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12, if you're not already there. And. Uh, such an appropriate encouragement you guys offered to Mike after he finished reading through those names. You'd have thought he was a native Hebrew speaker, wouldn't you? Um, I love the way you just tackled him with confidence, too. I love that. You know, you have probably learned enough about me by this point to know that I, um, in some ways, I'm a stereotypical male. I, I like to watch sports. I like to keep up with various sports, sports. Um, not all sports, golf just frankly doesn't do much for me. It seems uh, I have played three times and it was worse than work. Um, <laughs> one friend who's been with me two of the three times heard me say that once and he said, Dennis, playing golf with you is work um, and I wouldn't dispute that. But you know, one of the things I've noticed over my 53 years of life is how uh, just even the consuming of sports and all that happens around it has changed. You know, because of uh, various sports channels and uh, programs and even a, a network, networks that focus on particular sports like the NFL network, we can, we can invest more time in listening, watching, reading, caring about what people are saying about a game than the game itself. You know, when I was younger, long before the days of uh, cable television, let alone ESPN and other sports networks, you know, when a game was done, you'd you'd watch the game. My brother and I used to watch uh, NFL games together a lot, and we were usually yelling at each other when the Cowboys played, because he liked them. I still don't understand that. But um, I think he, you know, there, there must have been something wrong in the DNA. I don't know. But anyway, I digress. We would watch the the games uh together and after you know after the zeros appeared on the clock um you would hear the commentators uh share a word or two but after that it was just done you go on um i was watching nascar way back when it was just a regional redneck sport uh which i think it's becoming again actually but um but you know after a race was done there would be the trophy presented and and um you know, a, a driver might say a word or two, and then it was done. Now there's um, hour-long shows after a race, after a football game, after a basketball game. Um, you know, even with uh, professional sports now, uh, with most of them after the game is over, the, uh, the players that go in the locker room shower real quickly, and then the coach and the players are in a, a press conference immediately after the game. Now, you may wonder, what does that have to do with us, and what does this have to do with Joshua 12? Well, conceptually, I think that's what we see happening in Joshua chapter 12. In fact, at first glance, the first handful of verses seem a wee bit out of place. When you're talking about stuff that happened east of the Jordan, they're talking about stuff when Moses was still leading the people. But what we find in chapter 12 is something like a, a post-game show. There's discussion of what happened. We've followed the narrative so far through Joshua. We've been with the children of Israel as they fought some battles, some very important battles, as they lost a, a significant one to Ai, as they came back and, and uh, defeated Ai later. We watched them, uh, or walked with them, if you will, um, around Jericho, watched those walls fall that once seemed so intimidating. And what chapter 12 does You remember when we were last here a couple weeks ago? At the very end of chapter eleven, there's this summary statement that the land was at rest from war. Most of what had to be done was done. Joshua's um, again a summary statement about uh, the allotments. We'll see some more detail as we go through the remainder of Joshua. But chapter twelve is this uh, sort of summary statement about what had happened. There's the discussion of the kings that were defeated some of them were uh, easy pickings to be sure others were uh, had uh, reputation for being tough Um, and so we see these these uh, battles being uh, recounted briefly saying that they'd been defeated these various kings their people done Uh, and what I want us to see is in some of the details I want us to see a couple of things one God's Uh, work at work it's not just about the people of Israel it's not what they determine to do it's not how tough they are but really we see God's work and we see the effect of God's work in and through his people and the application I hope is obvious you know we live in a New Testament age we live with a mission that God has given us To take the gospel all around the world and sometimes at least in the course of my lifetime and growing up in evangelical churches and living in evangelical churches all my life. We can sometimes find it easier to talk about even put energy into uh, finances, prayer, care, compassion and so on to places all around the world. When we have people next door to us or down the street or in the next cubicle or classroom... That still need to hear the gospel, and we find it easier to take a secondary role to help make that happen rather than closest to us. I think the batteries just died in my uh, my pack here, but um, so i 'll just use this one so the point is, and I hope that we can see, is that as God is continuing to work through his people in this New Testament age, in this time when we have this great commission before us, to see all the peoples of the world hear and respond to the good news of Jesus, to see people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation not only hear the gospel, not only respond in faith, but also to grow in Christ's likeness, that is the basic uh, command of the Great Commission to make disciples. What I hope we can see is the value and benefit from pursuing that and also the glory that comes to our Lord. With that said, I want to call your attention to three characteristics of God's work and their effect. Notice first that God's faithfulness is recalled by remembering the past. God's faithfulness is recalled by remembering the past. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all the way back to verse 1. I think on the slide it's just going be, uh, to begin at verse 4. But uh, look back at verse 1. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Armon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled over Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites. That is half of Gilead. And the Arabah to the sea of Chenometh east and in the direction of Beth-Jeshemoth, Maybe I should have Mike come back up here and help me. <laughs> to the Sea of the Arabah, to the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of Rephaim, who lived at Asheroth and Edra, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah and all Bashan to the boundary of the, the Gesherites and the Mahakathites, and over the over half of the Gilead, to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, verse 6, the servant of the Lord and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Again, in some ways, these six verses seem a little strange here because they refer to events and battles that took place while the children of Israel were still east of the Jordan. In fact, these are battles that took place before we see Joshua assume leadership of the people. So we may ask ourselves, why does this fit here? Why does this make sense? Why did the Holy Spirit prompt Joshua to record these events in summary fashion? Well, again, I am convinced it is because when we remember the past, we don't just remember Past events as God's people. It is a way for us to recall, to remember, to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And as these kings and nations that were defeated are mentioned here and listed here, that were defeated and in, in the, the land given to those two and a half tribes, it is a reminder to us of God's faithfulness, not just to this generation, but remember. That all of what we see in Joshua is an expression of God's faithfulness to his people all the way back to the time of Abraham. When God first said to Abraham, I will give you this land, I will give your descendants this land, and through your descendants the whole world, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. What may appear to be simply a laundry list of accomplishments is in fact a recollection of the faithfulness of God. Again, we find this to be a consistent truth throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy, we find a repeating of the law and some of the historical events that took place. Again, this is a means of reminding the people of God's faithfulness by the way it was critically important in this time and place because there were so few people who had the ability to read it was not a generally literate society and so oral tradition was critical and recalling what God had done verbally was important again a reminder to his faithfulness and I hope the value of that should be obvious to us I believe had the people really let that sink in, the previous generation would not have found themselves on the wilderness of Paran saying, this thing is too big for us and too big for the God we serve. Friends, when we recall the faithfulness of God, we are not just glorifying his character, although there's certainly value in that, but we are being reminded consistently of his constant faithfulness. Frankly, it's one of the reasons Jesus said to us, do this in remembrance of me. Lest we find ourselves beginning to think that all of the Christian walk is on us, lest we begin to think that the challenges that, before, that are before us must be met by our power and energy and insight and intellect, When we recall the past and recall God's faithfulness, we are reminded that whatever the challenge is before us, he is equal to it. And by his grace and mercy and power, he will make us equal to that as well. God's faithfulness is recalled by remembering the past. You know, we understand this again as, Americans, later this month, we'll celebrate Memorial Day. It is a way, as a people, to be reminded constantly of those who have made sacrifices in the past, the ultimate sacrifice of their own life, not just for the protection of those who currently live, but for the protection of the values that were at the foundation of our nation. Again... We understand that culturally. And it is critical for us, again, as New Testament believers, to constantly be reminded of God's faithfulness. By the way, it's one of the reasons I enjoy local church histories. Sometimes they are boring. A former professor of mine uh, in my undergraduate program, um, he um, he was an unusual dude. Very cerebral guy. Um, The one class I had with him, he was my academic advisor, but the one class I had with him, his lectures honestly were drier than toast in the desert. Or maybe a a more apt uh, example would be drier than beef jerky. But like beef jerky, it's good protein. It was good to be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people throughout church history and throughout uh, the time of the Christian faith in our own American culture. And local church histories, the church I served, I think I've, I'm sure I've mentioned this from the pulpit, I know I've mentioned it in individual conversations, the church I served in North Carolina before I moved to Arizona is older than the United States, was started in 1770, and this professor of mine had written a history of that, that church, What happened in those early days? And I was astonished as I read it. I'd never heard any of the people in the congregation talk about this, but as I read Dr. Taylor's history of Cachy Baptist Church, I read of how the man who planted, to use contemporary language, that church, was shot by a man because he baptized that man's wife as a believer by immersion. And she had been raised Anglican, as many in that part of North Carolina was in the 18th century. And because she professed faith, this church planter, Elder Jeremiah Dargan, baptized her as a believer, and her husband was was, um, angry over that, thought it unnecessary, et cetera, on, and he shot Dargan. Didn't kill him, but he shot him. And I found myself reading that not only astonished by the fact that it's only been a little over 200 years that we did not have religious freedom in those earliest of colonies and certainly not in this part of what became America. But frankly, it's something that we often just simply have given away. We, we don't pursue with passion, biblical, doctrinal truth. And as I read that, I was reminded and encouraged that, hey, the battle is still real. It's a spiritual battle as we've seen before. But recalling God's faithfulness is a reminder to us that no matter how difficult it may seem, no matter how overwhelming the culture around us might seem, God has proven himself faithful time and again, and there's no reason for us to believe that he will not be faithful also tomorrow. God's faithfulness is recalled by remembering the past. Notice also that God's abundant blessing is experienced by walking in his promises. Now, I'm not going to read those list of names from uh, verses 7 down through uh, 23, but again, I want you to understand it's more than a laundry list of names and places. They represent a spiritual reality. That these children of Israel are possessing something so much more than property. So much more than land for, them to, for their families to grow. For them to, to uh, uh, pursue their living with livestock or with grain. No, what they are possessing is the promise of God. They are possessing the promise, again, that was given all the way back to Abraham. They are possessing the the promise that the previous generation, their own parents, said, we are not willing to take. They are possessing the promise of God. It's not about the land. It is about the deepening relationship between God and his people. I think one of the most striking examples of experiencing the the blessing uh, or experiencing the promises as we walk in God's blessing is Jesus's rebuke and promise to those in the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. He says that they have a reputation for being alive when in fact they were spiritually dead. And yet he says in verse 4 of Revelation 3, yet you... Have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Walking in his promises are where we experience God's abundant blessing. It's not just kind of sitting around and and uh, living life, really pursuing our own wishes, wants, and desires, but pursuing God's mission, living according to His blessing, walking in His promises. Trusting that when he says, I am enough, he is enough. Trusting that when he calls, that he will enable us. Again, going back a previous generation, Moses had experienced this. Remember when God first called him at the burning bush, Moses had all sorts of protests. I'm not a good enough speaker. They're not going to believe me. How, How do they know I'm credible? All sorts of excuses. But by being obedient and responding and walking in God's promises, even though it was challenging along the way, remember Moses got to see the most tremendous blessing of the Lord, not only the release of his people from Egypt, but them being given great wealth and being told, get out of here. We experience his abundant blessing by walking in his promises. My dear friends, we sang earlier about the the victory that is in Christ. And one of the things that has troubled me in 23 years of ministry is to see so many people who claim the name of Christ and yet live a defeated life. You know, Jesus did not say, I have come so that you might be miserable. Now, let us be sober about this reality. Jesus did say, the world hated me, they'll hate you. Jesus told his disciples, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Let us never believe that the unbelieving world is always going to be happy with us. There will be challenges. There will be times along the way when we pursue what God has called us to do when we're going to come in conflict with the unbelieving world. Doesn't mean we need to be angry. Doesn't mean we need to seek out conflict. But we're in a fallen world. Jesus said, we'll face it. But Jesus also said to his disciples in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life And have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't say I have come that you might be miserable until the day of my return. Jesus didn't say I have come so that you can be filled with fear until the time of my return. No, Jesus said I have come that you might have life and have it in Abundance. Not simply spiritual sustenance, but abundance. Full and overflowing. And the way, of course, we experience that is by walking in His promises. It's not the province of super Christians, it's not the province of a a handful of people who have it all together. This is something that Jesus offers to all those who call upon his name. All those who have trusted him. And I believe it's critically important for us to to understand that in our time and place. And also understand what that abundance means. You know, there are uh, folks out there proclaiming a prosperity theology. That that abundance is material wealth and riches. I would say if that's what Jesus gave his life for, he wasted it. But what Jesus gave his life for is so that we might be transformed, that in whatever experience and whatever challenge, difficulty we face, whether it be in our personal lives or even on mission for Christ, that we can live with victory because of his promises. Not because we're sharp enough, good enough, smart enough, or as could often be said for me, hard-headed enough. It is because of his promises, his faithfulness, his determination. And we experience that by walking in his promises. Notice finally that God's mercy gives us new opportunity to obey. God's mercy gives us new opportunity to obey. In verse 9, these are some names that are in that long list of 31 kings. The king of Jericho, 1. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, 1. Skip down to verse 14. The king of Hormah, 1. The king of Arad, 1. By the way, in case you're wondering why that 1 is listed after each one, I've described those as, uh, as verbal tally marks. You know, if you're ever counting something and using tally marks. You put the stroke and, you know, the five goes sideways. It's an easy way to summarize. And as these names are listed, and I would would call them verbal tally marks as they talk about the kings. And then the summary statement at the end, 31 kings. But there's some significant in a couple of these places that, I just read. The significance is that these are places where God's mercy was granted to his people, and with them new opportunities were given to obey. One of those should be fresh in our minds. We looked several weeks ago at Ai in chapter seven. The sin of Achan resulted in Israel's defeat because of God's mercy they go back and they conquer that city. Again, not because they're suddenly better. You know, the sin was dealt with. God's promise was still real. The whole people weren't going to suffer. His faithfulness to Abraham and his descendants wasn't going to end because of the sin of one man. And so they go back and they experience God's mercy and victory over this king. But Hormah is a place that may not be quite as familiar in our minds. It's a place that was synonymous with widespread rebellion, rebellion rather of God's people. I mentioned it briefly a moment ago in Numbers 13 and 14. It was there on the wilderness of Paran that God gave the children of Israel the opportunity to take possession of the promised land and they rebelled and refused to go in thinking it was too tough. The giants are too big. The cities are too fortified. There's no way we can do this. And they even said, hey, let's chunk Moses and have somebody lead us back to Egypt. Let's go back to that place we cried to get out of. But there we see in Numbers 13 and 14, if you haven't read it lately, I would encourage you maybe this afternoon or sometime this week to go back and read the account and thereafter, the rebellion of God's people, we see the sudden death of God's judgment on those ten spies that prompted the people to return, tried to encourage them to, to go back, were successful at least in telling um, and, and the people coming together and saying, No, we're not going to do this. We're not even going to try it. And when the nation saw God's judgment, pronounced on all of them they then decided to go up and seize the land by their own power again if you read through the text the way i would characterize it is is that once those 10 spies were were dealt with and put to death in the moment the people said uh-oh we shouldn't have listened to them let's go do this well god's judgment had already been pronounced he had already told them that this generation of people would would die, and the next generation would take possession. And even after that declaration of judgment, the people say, well, we're just going to go ahead and do this. Well, never a wise thing to do. And when they did, they were beaten back by the Amalekites and the Canaanites, and they were beaten back as far as Hormah, this place. So again, what is the significance? When Hormah is mentioned, when this city and its king are mentioned as those who were defeated and the land that is taken, it is a reminder, again, not just of God's faithfulness, but God's mercy. When they got beat back and were chased as far as Horma, it was just. It was part of God's discipline upon his people. And now they find themselves in the same place. More than 40 years later. A place that was synonymous with the rebellion of God's people. Now it is a place. That is not just a reminder of their obedience. But more importantly again of God's mercy. God owed them nothing. And yet. Because of his own character, he bestows this grace and mercy upon them to reveal his own character as merciful. Once the place synonymous with the rebellion of God's people, it is now a place where they experience victory. I cannot help but think of Abraham remember he foolishly attempted to fulfill God's promise by his own means he fathered Ishmael by the servant Hagar and yet despite his rebellion his lack of trust in God's promise God gave Abraham by his determined grace another opportunity to experience his fullest blessing through obedience And Sarah, of course, eventually gave birth to Isaac, the heir of the covenant, the father of Jacob and Esau, the progenitor of those who now subdue the land in Joshua 12. We see his mercy extended to God's people consistently. We see it even today, some years ago, when I was serving, in pastor, uh, serving as a pastor in Charlotte, my hometown, there was a church there that was in the throes of death. The community had radically changed around them. Sadly, it's not a rare story in many parts of the South, and frankly, even in uh, parts of Chicagoland. A church that had once been thriving and booming, baptizing new believers making disciples sending out missionaries various signs of vitality in life this church somewhere along the way had turned very inward the world around them changed the people around that property were so radically different than the people who were inside and i'm not just talking about racially although that was part of it lifestyle culture mindset values so different from the people who took residence in that building often just once a week. For more than two years, this pastor attempted to get them to reach out to their community. To understand the people who were there. To get to know that culture. To identify needs and minister to them. To earn, as I often say, the right respect and trust to be heard with the gospel among people who didn't know who they were, didn't understand them. For two years, he attempted to get them to do this, to reach the people in their Jerusalem, if you will. And after two years, it became quite evident that the church had no interest in reaching those that were in their Jerusalem. So for the next year, he tried to get them to relocate. Again, something I've seen time and again in the South, and perhaps it's happened in other places. Sentimental attachment to cavernous buildings they inhabited proved to be stronger than the sense of mission. And after a year of trying to get them to face reality and make tough decisions, the pastor was demonized, rebellion set in, and he left and that property that once housed some 600 in worship 40 years had dwindled to fewer than two dozen they found themselves soon after that unable to maintain the buildings that were so precious to them honestly I don't know why the church didn't die Many others have. But another pastor came, led them through difficult but necessary task of moving. And in nearly 15 years since that time, the two dozen folks who were left have now grown substantially, and not just in numbers. The joy of it is to see, because I know some of the people who are part of that church, to see how they have grown Spiritually, with a renewed sense of mission. They are now engaging the people who live around them after having relocated to a smaller place. And they're not only engaging people and seeing the numbers of the church grow, but recently they even took the, made the tough decision to change the name of the church to more clearly identify themselves with their mission field. This is something that the previous pastor never thought he would see happen. So, what occurred? I believe it's the same thing we see at Herma. It was God's mercy. Again, the people had been in rebellion, they had said, frankly, we don't care about the people. Outside our door. We don't care if they are bound for hell. We don't care. We care about ourselves more than we care about those who face an eternity separated from Christ. Honestly, I think God would have been justified to plenty to say, Your day is done. And again, countless churches face that. There are churches throughout our nation today, likely a thousand of them statistically, who will come to that conclusion today. And yet, in this instance, and praise God in many more, his mercy will be extended, not just so that they might hang on, but so that there might be new opportunity To obey. To pursue that mission that is before them. To pursue the great commission that Jesus has left us all. It is God's mercy providing a new opportunity to obey. So where does this bring us? I want to call your attention quickly to the bottom line. As we recall God's faithfulness, we recall his character and as a result... It brings to us confidence to trust him. To know that when he calls, even when the walls seem big and the giants seem too strong, his faithfulness brings confidence to us to trust him. Trusting him is also the way we experience his blessings. Again, even when the challenge seems tough, even when it seems to be something beyond us, trusting him and walking forward in obedience is the way we see his abundant blessing. And then finally, God's goodness calls us to trust him more deeply. It's not just about us, not just about what we get, not just about how wonderful it makes us feel. But rather, his goodness calls us to trust him more deeply. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?